0: This Washington Post Live podcast is presented in partnership with the Rockefeller Foundation, advancing new frontiers of science, data, policy, and innovation to solve global challenges related to health, food, power, and equity, and economic opportunity. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Princeton University's Eddie Glaude Jr.,
1: Operation Hope's John Hope Bryant, and other leaders and scholars joined the Post to discuss the factors that have allowed the racial wealth gap to endure and ways to address that inequality today. Let's listen.
2: Hello, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Mary Jordan, national correspondent for the Washington Post. Well, the stunning racial economic inequality is one of the most important issues facing the United States. And to begin this important discussion, I'm so delighted to introduce uh, Professor Eddie Gloud. He's the chair of the African American Studies Department at Princeton and the best-selling author. Um, It's a great pleasure uh, to start talking to you. And why don't we start right on the news? And uh, then we're going to bring in our other guest, Rebecca Dixon. She's the executive director of the National Employment Law Project. Uh, And jobs, of course, are one of the most important things when it comes to economic stability. But let's go to Professor Gloud for a moment. Uh, The pandemic, we keep hearing, has further widened the economic disparity between Black families and white families. And I'd love you to talk about that and to talk about the effects, the practical effects um, on health, because of course they're tied. How has the pandemic changed the equation here?
3: Well, first of all, it's a delight to be here with you. Um, I mean, in obvious ways, the pandemic has disrupted the, uh, the economic functioning of the United States. And that has involved Uh, people uh, not being able to go into work or uh, being laid off or just simply being let go. Um, And African-Americans are always or have always been, and Sister Rebecca can talk about this in a much more detailed way, uh, always have been in a kind of precarious position when it comes to the labor market. And so what COVID has revealed are the fissures that were already present uh, in American society, the inequalities, deep inequalities that overdetermined and defined our way of life. And those inequalities were evident not only in the labor force, but uh, also uh, in healthcare. And so those disparities of uh, healthcare delivery, those disparities of uh, a range of services and pre- comorbidities and the like, all of those things have been made known, made evident very clearly in the midst of this pandemic. And in, in, on top of all of that, it is revealed how broken our healthcare system is. And what that means in its totality is that those who are the most vulnerable, which Black folk and brown folk and Native peoples disproportionately are representative of that group, uh, we bear the brunt of, of the devastation that has been unleashed by COVID-19.
2: And when you say the devastation, they're also
3: dying in greater numbers. Is that correct? Absolutely. So Black we Black be- Americans. Yeah, we want to be very clear. It's not just Black Americans who are dying disproportionately. It's particular Black Americans, right? It's poor folk, it's low wealth folk who are bearing the burden. Those folk who don't have the luxury, as I do, of working from home, who are, quote unquote, now essential workers. Those people who have to put themselves in the front line in order to keep what semblance of the economy that is still working, continuing to to work. So, I wanna be very, very clear that black folk are dying, but we need to be very, very, even more, even clearer about who, who in particular are dying, and that's poor and low wealth black folks.
2: And Rebecca, let's talk about jobs. Millions and millions of people have lost their jobs in this pandemic. And there's new studies coming out that say that it could be a long time before some people get them back, but that white people, are gaining them back at a greater rate than black people. I'd love you to talk about jobs when it comes to racial inequality. And I'd love to hear what you think about, you know, this discussion about a universal income. You know, even California is saying, should we give a thousand dollars a month to everyone? What do you think?
1: So certainly on jobs, we've seen that the impact of COVID has been uneven. We know that, the labor market is intensely segregated. So we're, we're usually aware that neighborhoods and schools are segregated, but the labor market is also intensely segregated with like 87% of the labor market of jobs being considered racially segregated when you control for education. And what that means is that black and brown folks are really, steered and segregated to low-paying jobs and jobs that are dangerous and in industries that have lost a lot of jobs during this pandemic. So we have um, Black workers and Latinx workers working in retail jobs, in restaurant jobs, in jobs that have hospitality, jobs that have really taken a huge hit. And we know that it's going to take some time in order to bring the labor market back um, even with a vaccine. And so we do need to be thinking about what we can do for those folks who are out of work. With regards to uh, a basic income, I think as long as it is not something that is designed to take away benefits that folks currently are qualified for. So we wouldn't want to have basic income at the expense of unemployment insurance benefits or some other really key social insurance programs. You know, all the the
2: whole world is experiencing experiencing this pandemic and other countries are giving you know governments are giving the lower paid by the hour wage workers money and and our country is not and some people see that as a race issue what do you think um i uh, uh, I'd love to hear both of you on that actually oh, we'll go to professor I'll defer to, uh,
3: oh okay sure i think one of, i mean obviously race plays a role but i think it's 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 clearly an ideological position that has in some ways determined our political discourse for the last 40 years so with the ascent of reaganism right as a political and economic philosophy what we've seen very clearly is an all out assault on the role of government in our day-to-day lives right a shift in emphasis from workers right, our concern about workers to to the so-called producers. Remember Mitt Romney's uh, famous or infamous formulation there. And so part of what we're seeing is, or what we've seen over the last 40 years is the kind of shredding of any semblance of a social safety net in the name of an economic philosophy that that in some ways, I think tilts, I don't think, I think I know, tilts toward the top 1% and the top one tenth of a percent. So what we're seeing is a kind of callousness that follows or flows from an economic philosophy that has produced enormous inequality in the system, right? As, as we see a particular class of folk extracting, leaving everyday ordinary people and everyday ordinary workers more and more vulnerable in a precarious position. So it, it involves, and, and let me say this, Black and brown people are disproportionately impacted or have been disproportionately impacted and continue to be disproportionately impacted by that ideological position. And so I think we need to understand this for what it is, whether you call it Reaganism or whether you call it Thatcherism or whether you call it neoliberalism, what we're seeing are the effects of that particular economic and political philosophy uh, 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 exposed by COVID-19.
2: Rebecca, um, would you call the policies of how what we've done with COVID and what we've not
1: done? Would you call these policies racist? What I would say is that structural racism is baked into our entire law and policy infrastructure in the United States. And so, as the professor was saying, with social insurance programs, if uh, if you take a look at the map of where slaves were located in 1865 in the southern states, and you overlay that now with the benefits um, amounts and access to unemployment insurance benefits, for example, you see that in the South where uh, still the majority of Black people live, more than 50% of Black folks live in the South, you see that those states uh, never did build a robust social insurance program. So Mississippi, the state where I'm from, the unemployment insurance maximum benefit is $235 a week, And that's in comparison to much more reasonable and and humane amounts in other states. And so structural racism is is baked into everything. And when we give states the opportunity to choose different policies, we find time and time again, so as far back as those things with unemployment insurance and up till now with the Affordable Care Act, time and time again, those Southern states do choose to not uh, do things that would protect working people or that would actually provide any type of social insurance or uh, benefits or safety net. So that that has been consistent across our history and it's, it's a part of what we've always done. Like if you take the new deal, so this was the new deal was the last time we had a huge um, economic uh, challenge like we see right now. And we created the New Deal programs, which brought social insurance, so like unemployment insurance benefits, the right to organize, lots of important things for workers, but Black folks were left out. And when we talk about Black women, 90% of them were left out because of their concentration in agriculture and domestic jobs. And so this fact that our labor market is so stratified is still with us today, and it is still a way in which our policies are unresponsive to people of color because of the types of jobs they work in, um, in addition to just you know racism on its face at times as well.
2: Let's keep going on that, um, Professor Gloud. Can you ground us here in some of the history? of systemic bias against uh, black people. I mean, uh, Rebecca just brought up um, that even after the New Deal, we're trying to, the country's trying to get out of the Great Depression, many black people were left out. So I'd love for you to talk about the history of the ingrained uh, bias. And then I'd love to hear what you think about what we need federal policies going forward. After the pandemic, to right the wrongs.
3: Well, first of all, I just want to acknowledge that I'm a fellow Mississippian, Sister Dixon. So this is wonderful <laughs> to have two folks from the state of Mississippi, the the, the you know the Magnolia State, on on, on 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 air at the same time. So let me just say this: like the United States has been organized along the lines, and you 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 played this quote earlier, on the lines that certain people ought to be valued more than others, uh, and because of the color of their skin, right? And I call this the value gap. And the value gap is this belief that white people matter more than others. And that belief has organized our social, political, and economic arrangements, right, since the founding up until this day. And it's along the lines of that belief that advantage and disadvantage has been distributed. I mean, the late political theorist Judith Sklar from Harvard actually made the claim that, you know, America didn't really become a genuine democracy until the passage Of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And then when you think about it, even before that moment, right, when you think about the second founding, uh, after the the cataclysmic, uh, the catastrophic event of the Civil War with this carnage and the passage of the Civil War Amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and in some ways the formation of the modern U.S. nation state, what do we get in response to radical reconstruction? We get, in effect, legal apartheid in the South, De facto segregation in the North and the Midwest and, and, and the West, right? States, states like Oregon. I mean, there's a history to why Oregon uh, looks the way it looks and is behaving the way it's behaving, the same with Washington, right? So what we do is we see doubling down in this moment, right, on the belief that white people ought to matter more than others. And that's evidencing itself in the distribution of value in terms of who has access to, to uh, uh, education, quality education, who has access to quality jobs, who has access uh, to quality housing, who has access uh, to bank loans, who has access to capital generally. And so race has determined so much about the polity that you just can't assume that because of the civil rights movement of the mid 20th century, that those policy decisions have gone to the wayside. In fact, they still reverberate. There's still an afterlife to the, to, to all of that in our current moment. That's quick and dirty but I think you get the point, So at least I hope you do.
2: What do you think about reparations, Professor? Um, is it time uh, to put money out there to fix kind of the wrongs of the past?
3: There's nothing, that, let's just be, be very clear that when we talk about racial inequality in this country, we have to understand that it's not just simply the result of individual acts of prejudice, right? Of individual acts of discrimination, racial inequality in this country is actually the result of policy decisions, right? When we talk about the New Deal, we talk about uh, the dual housing market, we talk about FHA, there's a reason why at the very moment in which the launch American middle class was being created, fueled by government policy, as Sister Dixon laid out, Black folk were cut out. The wealth gap isn't a result of our inability to not follow the, you know, the Protestant ethic or our laziness or the like, it has everything to do with structural impediments. So how do we respond to racial inequality? Nothing I will do individually, nothing I can do individually, will close the wealth gap, right? Having everything to do with my, what my parents had available to them and what their parents had available to them and how that generational wealth wasn't in some ways accumulated. So to answer your question directly, we have to begin to talk about policy remedies that can be thought of as reparation. There's a new book that's coming out by the brilliant law professor Dorothy Brown down at Emory uh, by Crown entitled the, w- the Whiteness of Wealth. And she talks about a racial tax credit, a way of kind of responding to how wealth has been accumulated by white Americans and how the racial realities of the country has in some ways uh, blocked the way to the accumulation of wealth for black folks. So maybe we can do something via tax credits that will allow black Black Americans right to begin to accrue uh, uh, some some of the benefits that were denied us. But that's just one example. So I think reparations is an important is an important conversation to be had.
2: Rebecca, I'd love to hear you on this on both what you think policy wise and the private sector. Who, what needs to happen going forward so that we don't have these shocking statistics that a Black family has only one-tenth the wealth of the typical white family?
1: I think there's definitely a role for the private sector. Um, um, I was recently on the Federal Reserve Bank's uh, Racing the Economy series, and one of our fellow panelists said that companies feel like we can't legislate our way out of this. And, you know, to be sure, the, the fact that we have legislation and policy is the foundation that employers are working off of. And so if our foundation is not solid, then that affects everything else. So we know that the labor market was becoming more integrated. So Black and brown workers were getting more and more opportunities. And a lot of this was driven by the civil rights movement and Title VII and all of the policies and laws that came into place, including the EEOC or Equal Opportunity Employment Commission. And what we've seen is that there was a dramatic uh integration of the labor market that happened around the time that the EEOC came to be and the law was passed and starting to be implemented. And that's because employers responded to what the compliance concerns were and what they needed to do. And so that's the foundation. And then there's a ton of things that they can do on their own, but we need that foundational piece that is is saying what is the minimum that you need to do. And so, with it, the EEOC currently, we know that the funding has been flat for many years, even though the labor market and the the size of the population that they have to regulate has grown. Um, and we're not really doing a good job with that because it's politically mediated. And when depending on who's in office, that's that depends on how much uh, how much seriousness is put behind the EEOC and its its job.
2: If you could do one thing for uh, hourly workers, wage workers, people who, uh, while the top CEOs, their, their pay has soared over the last 40 decades and the lower has not, what would you do? How do you make people have a living wage? What, what, was, what are the first one or two things you would do?
1: So we've seen uh, a whole groundswell of states and localities passing a $15 minimum wage. So that is definitely a very good start to seeing all of this, and we need a federal $15 minimum wage. Um, We need to not undervalue these these workers who we are now calling essential, but have been treated as disposable for so very long. And it's not just wages, it's also job quality. So we have a growing number of Black and brown workers who are working in a part of the labor market that is called temp and staffing, or what we know as the gig economy, or those jobs. And those are jobs that often have no benefits and don't provide any coverage, so no sick leave, no um, workers' compensation if they get sick on the job, none of those things are being provided. And those are growing parts of the sector. And it's really shocking that um, Black workers are about 12% of the labor market, but they're about 25% of these temporary staffing jobs. And those jobs can pay 40% less. So a Black worker can be standing next to another worker who's a permanent employee, and be paid 40% less to do exactly the same job. So if we're taking 40% off the top of your pay, we're not helping uh, you to have the prosperity and opportunity that this country offers. So that's really important. And I think I would definitely, given what we're seeing with COVID and the lack of any kind of federal enforcement of safety standards around COVID-19, we absolutely need the uh, Department, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to come out with an enforceable standard around COVID-19 and health and safety at the workplace. And that, that is going to make sure that folks can actually be well and uh, actually have an opportunity to, to continue to work and not be sick. And we've seen folks who are sick and dying, which is unacceptable. Professor Cloud, this
2: weekend in the nation's capital, um, there was a lot of violence uh, by groups that call themselves white supremacists. I wonder what you think um, about the, are there economic correlations between that rage that we saw among these groups that that call themselves white nationalists against black people?
3: My intuition um, is that Yes, but I think it's 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 not that that economic anxiety is not driving the racial anxiety. I think the racial anxiety is driving the economic anxiety and, um and and what I mean by that is that there's a sense in which uh their, uh, uh the account that's given of the economic precarity that they are experiencing uh, is because a tyrannical government is Is engaged in redistributing resources from hardworking white people to undeserving and lazy black and brown people. Uh, Populism in this country typically always has a kind of right wing tilt. And so I think there's not only this sense of of a kind of economic uh, uncertainty uh, where people don't believe whether you're in Appalachia or, or in the Delta of Mississippi or right in the Rio Grande, there's a sense in which you can't uh uh you can work as hard as you can put 40 out you know put in 40 hours a week but you can barely put food on the table keep a roof over your head and damn sure can't uh, afford to send your kids to school and so typically in these moments there is a sense in which uh, americans tend to white americans in particular tend to scapegoat outsiders right they tend to turn uh uh on folks uh, and this is then compounded i believe by demographic shifts uh, that the, the the browning of America that we have been talking about has already begun to make itself known culturally, and it's definitely it definitely made itself known in 2008 with the election of Barack Obama, and so we're still dealing with the kind of cultural backlash, to put it put backlash in inverted commas, and the kind of and its convergence with this kind of economic uncertainty and precarity that then evidences itself right, as a kind of racial animus, but that racial animus was present prior to, which allows for them to account for, it's kind of like a hermeneutic circle, as it were, if that makes sense. Well,
2: let me leave us with this. This discussion is so vital. I'm so delighted that we've begun it. Um, we're The last question here, because of just time constraints, is we're at this moment where the Biden-Harris team is assembling uh, their, the people who will lead this country. Uh, and they'll take the office next month. I'd like to hear from both of you. Um, are you pleased with the the picks for the top jobs so far and what you would like to see in the early Biden-Harris administration? We'll start with Professor Gloud, and then we'll give Rebecca the last word. On your thoughts now about, um, are you pleased with the nominations of the top leaders for the Biden-Harris team and what you want to see in an early administration? First, Professor Gloud, and then Rebecca.
3: Pleased is a bit strong. (laughs) Um, I I I am I am all for uh, competence uh, and in especially in the aftermath of what we've experienced over the last four years. I, I I worry with. The, the nomination for Secretary of Agriculture and, 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 and some other positions that this is in some ways a, an effort to return to what was. Uh, given the scale of the problems that we face, I, I want the Biden-Harris administration to be bolder, uh, to be more visionary. Uh, we need to respond to the scale of problems at scale. And that's not going to, that's not going to be a return to what was. This can't be a third Obama administration And we're seeing a lot of the Obama-Clinton folks show up again. Can
2: you talk about what you mean about Boulder? What would you like to see?
3: Well, we're going to have to address the deep divides. We're going to have to see clear policies with regards to uh, criminal justice, right? Dealing with not only uh, police reform, but criminal justice reform. We're going to have to see clear policies with regards to the economy. What are we going to do? Not only about a living wage, but also we're going to have to deal with the fact uh, with the fact of this deepening inequality in the country. And it's, it's even more expansive as we've seen people falling below the poverty, falling into the shadows while millionaires and billionaires are getting richer and richer during this, during this moment. So we're going to have to address the deep inequality at the heart of, of, of our economy. And then lastly, we're going to have to deal with health care. Right? What, what we have seen is that our healthcare system is broken. Uh, in some ways, we've witnessed more more broadly that our society is broken. We're going to have to see some some really aggressive policy issues uh, in this in this moment. So those are the three areas that I'm really looking for uh, 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 to see what they do, and and they just have to be really really bold. We can't just simply, I keep saying it, uh, but we can't simply go back to what was. We're going to have to do something radically different. I think.
2: And we're. Um, Thank you so much for that. And we're running out of time, but Rebecca, I want to hear what you think. Um, What do you think about what you're seeing so far from Biden-Harris and what do you want to see?
1: I would say that I'm cautiously optimistic in terms of what I'm seeing. And I feel like this is an enormous, so we're in a time of enormous crisis, but it's also an enormous opportunity for that administration to select uh, folks who are going to govern and center the needs of workers of color. By doing that, we're going to make sure that we're taking care of their needs and that they're not over to the margins like they have been throughout history. And when we do that, if we take care of the needs of the most vulnerable, we actually have a circle that goes around and improves working conditions for all working people. So I'm hoping that the Labor Secretary pick is someone who is going to hold that principle and go in and, as the professor said, not go back to the status quo, but to actually make these policies work and make them inclusive. Thank you
2: both so much. Um, I'm gonna be back in a few minutes for the second half of our discussion today uh, with Priscilla Almodovar and John Hope Bryant. Please stick around.
0: The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
4: Hi, I'm Jean Mazur, a journalist and analyst for CTV News. During this pandemic, America's 651 billionaires have increased their collective worth by approximately $1 trillion. Most people have suffered, particularly minority-owned businesses. Here today to talk about that situation and what to do about it, we have Otis Raleigh. Otis is Senior Vice President of U.S. Equity and Economic Opportunity Initiative at the Rockefeller Foundation. Also joining us, Melissa Bradley, founder of 1863 Ventures. Thank you both for joining me. Um, Otis, to set the stage, can you explain how successful BIPOC businesses help address the racial wealth gap?
5: Sure, first of all, thanks for having me and it's, uh, it's good to be share the panel with Melissa. So let me say this, a, a couple of key ways that it really helps to address the racial wealth gap. First, um, all the data shows that um, African-American businesses, BIPOC businesses strengthen local economies. Uh, more than 48% of, of dollars are recycled by small businesses within the local economies that they're in. That number is even greater for African-American owned businesses. They also are, are more likely to hire, uh, so they uh, hire other African Americans, and therefore they are they help to foster uh, uh, increased job uh, opportunities within the communities that they're that they're in. Uh, but primarily, it's really around policy, right? So ultimately, the reality is that historically, policy has been has had the intention of really limiting access to people of color. Um, and in terms of economic access and economic opportunity. And so when you're thinking about how do you reverse that, it has to be intentional just as those policies intentionally kept them out. Um, and so if you want to reverse it, you have to intentionally kind of focus dollars into African-American um, ownership and African-American businesses so that they can, um, can, can they can transform the, the economies that they're in and do better uh, than historically they have done within the U.S.
4: Uh, Melissa Bradley, what are some of the barriers and obstacles that these businesses face, even in the best of times?
0: Yeah, no, again, thank you for having me. And I'm always thrilled to share space with Otis and his brilliance. You know, I think what's happened in this pandemic is that it's just exacerbated what has already existed with respect to structural racism. So when you think about access to capital, it is legal for black entrepreneurs to pay more on a debt instrument than their white peers. Uh, That actually is part of research that I did that said it's at least $250,000 more for a black entrepreneur to start the same exact business as their white peer, and that was pre-COVID. So access to capital has been one. When you don't have access to capital, that's a means to an end. And so, where there was opportunity to be able to pivot and move from an in-store location to being online and digital, oftentimes they didn't have that skill set, nor did they have access to the technology. That was a cost they couldn't afford. For some of them, and I'm really proud to say that, while the national average is a 40% loss of Black businesses for eight. In 1963, we only lost 7.5 and actually more than half of them have stayed open and actually increased revenue and more than half have actually stayed the same at staff or increased. And so they're quite resilient, but the structural perception of their cash readiness, their worthiness and their ability to pivot does not give them the capital they need to be able to move forward. So unfortunately, COVID has just made it harder for entrepreneurs to access capital than to be able to hire staff to be able to get the equipment to say, all of a sudden, my whole business model is now flipped upside down.
4: Melissa Bradley, I
0: thought that CDFIs were supposed to help with this access to capital Mm -hmm. question. And I think in some cases they did. But we have to remember that at first, the program that came out was not eligible for CDFIs, which, you know, it was really the second phase and third phase. They realized that such a significant swath of entrepreneurs, particularly black entrepreneurs, were locked out of the banking system because they didn't have a pre-existing relationship. The the opportunity is that several CDFIs were able to get money out. But you have to understand the average loan requested by a black entrepreneur was $5,000. So for some CDFIs, one, while they could participate, they didn't because the transaction costs associated with putting out that $5,000 was way beyond. The second is that you know CDFIs still had to do all the work. And CDFIs traditionally are not well-capitalized themselves and have similar issues analogous to black entrepreneurs and so they really couldn't keep up with the demand and we find that many of our entrepreneurs who need money yesterday uh, and who are somewhat mute uh, when it respects to interest rates because they know they need to move forward we really needed to not just have cdfis but also a lot of the fintech platforms that for better or for worse have captured the eyes and attention of small business owners because they have the ability to move faster my hope is that post this crisis is an opportunity to really reimagine the financial services sector, and how do we have a smoother pathway for all entrepreneurs, particularly Black entrepreneurs, to access capital in a fast and effective way so they can actually respond to all the market changes?
5: And you uh, you oh, definitely, oh, you just can't, oh, so sorry, go I just want to say you, you can't leave banks off the hook, right, um, and hold them responsible for what they have failed to do. The answer was not just, okay, well, CDFIs can, can step up, um, but that banks did stepped back. In a very um, dramatic way, is, needs to be called out, needs to be tracked, and, and needs to be uh, held. Res- they need to be held responsible for their failure to, to meet the needs of these of, of Americans, African Americans within um, the business sector.
4: Otis Rowley, what is the role of philanthropy in addressing this issue?
5: Well, I, I really see philanthropy as one part of, of the solution. We are not the answer, right? Um, as, as I mentioned in the very beginning, uh, the, you know, there were very specific federal policies that were put in place um, that had the intention of um, la- preventing African-Americans from having access to the American dream. Um, and so where I think philanthropy can be helpful is supporting those uh, changes to policy Um, that create more intentionality around really creating more equity um, and access to to capital and credit for for people of color. Um, I think we can highlight successes um, and we can help to to do our grant making and investing in a way that lifts up those um, that are doing what they should do uh, in terms of whether they are banks, CDFIs, private corporations. I think we can also help in terms of providing resources to go towards data and research that, that names and calls out uh, what the problems are. Uh, City Foundation's report showing that there was $16 trillion with a T of, of GDP that was um, was lost because of s- systemic and structural racism is, is um, I think, is a compelling argument as to why Even if aside from moral reasons or emotional reasons, but from economic issue reasons, we should, we should change the way that we have been doing business in this country because it is hurting this country. I look at a a city like Jackson, Mississippi that's 80% African American. 80% 80% African-American. They have about 20 to 25% of the wealth. If, if 80% of the businesses in the U.S. were controlled by a foreign entity, we would see this as a national crisis. We would think we need to do something different. And I know we need to do something different in, in our cities and states and then throughout the country.
4: Mr. Rowley, can you be specific about some of the innovations, some of the policy changes that you would like to see to help those businesses and the people who work for those businesses?
5: Sure. So I I would love to see just uh, particularly on the policy side for the CRA, um, to actually be a real act um, and real accountability, uh, that we would not just collect data, um, but that would be um, a company, banks would be held accountable uh, for, for failing to actually provide the loans and resources and debt uh, to, to businesses, African American businesses, and to the communities that they're supposed to serve. Um, I, I would love for corporations to be held accountable as well uh, in terms of how they are going about doing business. Um, MBE, um, Minority Business, Enterprise, WBE um, uh, laws uh, that have been in place. They have been really beneficial to, um, to, to women, to white women, uh, but it has not been as beneficial to African American and Latino businesses. Um, and so I would love for there to be policy changes that that really address that in, the, in a systemic way throughout the country.
4: Melissa, we're almost out of time, but very, very quickly, can you tell me, do you have any add-ons to that list?
0: No, I just would say that I think this the point that the Otis raised where this is not just about moral, this is really an economic imperative. If you think about the demographic shifts, many states have already flipped from minority to new majority as we call them and that's twenty forty four. Forty percent decline in white male entrepreneurship. Dramatic increase amongst African-American women, Latinx business is fastest growing. This is really about how do we shore up the economic prosperity of this country, not just in addition to course correcting for history. And so I think it's important that we take the personal element out of this and not play the moral yes. card, really play the economic card so that people can rally around it and not see this as a political issue, but see this as an issue around our future growth as a country.
4: And we have to leave it there. Melissa Bradley, founder of 1863 Ventures, and Otis Raleigh, uh, senior vice president of U.S. Economic and Equity Opportunity Initiative at the Rockefeller Foundation.
2: Thank you to you both. Now back to the Washington Post.
0: And now back to Washington Post Live.
2: For those just joining us now, we're back uh, Washington Post Live. We're talking about closing the racial wealth gap. Delighted to now introduce our next two guests, uh, Priscilla Almodovar, the CEO of Enterprise Community Partners, and John Hope Bryant from Operation Hope, two people who are out there working to close the gap. Why don't we start with you, Priscilla? Can you just quickly run through how we got here in housing? You've done so much work in housing. What have been some of the systemic biases that made this gap in the first place?
6: Yeah, delighted to be here. Uh, You know, so much of what we're hearing about today is rooted in housing, and we heard from uh, Professor Gold in terms of the uh, policies. It goes back to uh, segregation and redlining, uh, back to the New Deal, and how we how we created these communities. Uh, it's government mandated segregation that goes way back to the '30s that has continued, um, even uh, discriminate housing discrimination that's going on today. When you look at the housing instability, we have one in four low income um, individuals pay more than half of their income in rent. 80% of those are Blacks. They're, they, uh, black Americans tend to be renters. Uh, when you look at eviction cases, 80% are Blacks or people of color. Um, when you look at um, home ownership rates, um, you know, there's a 30% gap between white households who own homes versus Black home ownership. So it goes way back to housing, and it's so foundational to so much of what we're hearing about today.
2: So it's taken us decades to get here, Priscilla, but can you just... What would the beginning steps be to start closing this gap when it comes to housing? We just heard somebody say the banks really need to step up. Are they the first ones? And what does the federal government need to do?
6: Well, I would say right now, given that we're in the middle of the pandemic, the first thing we need to do is address the eviction crisis. The United States is about to face uh, potentially the largest eviction crisis we have seen in our country. We have about 20 million people, that's about 5 million households that are at risk of eviction. Um, we have about $70 billion of back rent that needs to be paid. So, the first thing that the federal government should look at is emergency rental assistance and to stabilize the economy as, as the number one priority. Um, secondly, um, it would be um, fair housing. You know, fair housing uh, was passed in the 1960s to address much of this housing discrimination. Um, the, you know, if I, if I were a queen for one day, um, I hope the new administration on January 20th passes an executive order that brings back the affirmatively f- furthering fair housing rules, which requires communities that receive federal funding to come up with a plan so that communities are communities of opportunities, where people are able to live in mixed income communities. And then number three, we need an increased uh, housing supply. At the end of the day, the housing crisis we have today in this country is one of supply. Uh, we, we, There's about 7 million, um, a shortage of 7 million low-income units that we need, uh, 36 units for every 100 that's required. So the federal government has incredible programs to bring those public-private partnerships to build more housing and to preserve the affordable housing stock that we have today. Thank you. Uh, John,
2: Operation Hope, your Operation Hope is doing very interesting things, trying to increase financial literacy and give them tools. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing?
7: Uh, Yeah, first of all, honored to be with you guys. So glad The Washington Post is doing this, Rockefeller Foundation, University of Virginia. Uh, Interesting that, you know, the University of Virginia was there at the the dawning of this nation. Uh, And, of course, the founder of uh, Rockefeller in different ways. Um, and in some ways, we're having the same conversation right now. Honored to be on with Priscilla. And Melissa killed it uh, with her answer in the last segment. It's not morals or money. <laughs> it's, it's morals and money. <laughs> um, we we just, unfortunately, put our culture inside of our economy versus putting our economy inside of our culture. Let me add on to what Priscilla just said brilliantly. The problem would be it actually started beyond uh, before um, the, the 20th century. You had a problem of 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 real estate and of uh, financial literacy and wealth creation. Uh, It sort of straddles between uh, slavery, uh, which was the largest reverse transfer of wealth, uh, I think, in modern history. Uh, If you worked and didn't get compensated for your work, that's as basic as America as apple pie. You work hard, you should get the benefit of this. We didn't. We worked hard. The guy in the big house, his house got bigger. (laughs) We couldn't create capital because we were capital, traded, invested, insured bonded. Um, We were actually in some ways more valuable than land because we were portable when the the crops might have gone bad. You could actually sell uh, what was in human uh, chateau. And so you fast forward to after the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln and uh, Frederick Douglass had a dream called a freeman's bank that was chartered to teach free slaves about money. Very few people know about it. Um, and it was designed to teach these Union soldiers who were being preyed upon by that day's version of a payday lender at the camp where the Union soldiers were fighting for their the nation's freedom, even though they weren't being treated fairly themselves. Uh, and that bank, uh, which fought, followed the story of 40 acres and a mule, this is three months, 40 acres, then the mule, it's like a tractor, you know, my God, they work so hard, give them a tractor, give them a mule. And then the bank was placed a place to domicile the savings, teach them about financial literacy, basically unleash them into the free enterprise and capitalist system. And then Lincoln was killed the next month. And that bank will be one of the top 100 in the country.
2: John, um, we heard what Priscilla's wish list was just very quickly um, to close this gap. What do you want yeah. to see?
7: Uh, earning of tax credit scaled. Uh, of everybody making $60,000 a year or less. I wrote something called the New Marshall Plan on this. Everybody, 60, the, the color is green, not black or white, it's green. Give everybody 60000 is make $60,000 a year or less, a bonus for working just like Wall Street. Main Street gets it like Wall Street. That will begin to bridge some of the income and wealth inequality gap and the friction that was discussed in the earlier conversation. Massive internships, uh, public policy that turns on the internship and apprenticeship scale. I'm talking about tens of thousands, if not millions. Uh, and that is, uh, basically the, what we did with the Marshall Plan, uh, in the, uh, in the, in, well, after World War II. Uh, and things like the One Million Black Business Initiative that we've done at Operation Hope with Shopify, we're committing a million, to committing to build a, a, a new, a million new black businesses over 10 years. The biggest problem we have, by the way, you have 41%, 44% of black folks who own a home, 96% of b- folks who own a black, a business don't have an employee. So you can't create Just- wealth. Yeah, uh,
2: John. Just very quickly, um, can you tell me? So, are you saying internships? Is this a federal government
7: program that provides paid internships for? Nope. for whom? No, nope. no. Ninety percent of our jobs come from the private sector. Wealth comes from the private sector. You want the government to create the policy that incentivizes uh, uh, and taxes uh, those who don't do it. The private sector to unleash uh, the uh, uh, the opportunity for jobs, uh, the ladder, repair. Uh, to create, getting folks from the streets to the suites uh, and uh, uh, creates uh, wealth and job opportunities. So, income, reversing the, basic, basically the two things I just mentioned, along with what Priscilla said about uh, housing policy.
6: Yeah, you know, what such a great, this is such a great tee up for something that we are just so delighted to actually be announcing today, which captures so much of what we're talking about here. And it's our equitable path forward. The real estate industry, if you look at it today, when you look at who builds these communities, they're white-led. So when you look at who, um, who who creates these communities, and it's like of the real estate industry, 2% are black-led. So what Enterprise is launching today, actually, coincidentally, is Equal Path Forward, where we will invest in black-led Uh, other uh, minority-led organizations to build the communities. This is where people live. We need to provide them the access to capital that we've been hearing about today. They don't have the friends and family money which is needed in real estate. So we are launching a $3.5 billion initiative. Corporate America is helping us. In fact, our first investor is Netflix, where we are going to provide the capital, the training that John is talking about, to 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 build these communities, I think as we think about how these communities are, it's also engaging the communities. It's that community engagement, what do they need and have them built by those who know what's needed, uh, know what's required, and let's support them by bringing them capital, supports, uh, the knowledge, but also the pipeline. And I think that 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 part of it is critically important as well. And we're just so delighted to be able to do that with our partners. Well that's
2: news. That is news and thank you for that. We're talking kind of billions here. Um, can you, yeah. Priscilla, just quickly, why is Netflix, why is the private sector kind of tuning into this
6: problem now? Yeah, you know, I, I, that's a great question. And I, I, I am optimist in a time when it's hard to be the optimist. I think corporate America is realizing that these are communities where their workers are, where their customers are, And this is a a reckoning in our country and everyone has to be at the table. Government cannot do it alone. Uh, The private sector can't do it alone. Philanthropy can't do it alone. We all have to work together to build a more inclusive, equitable society. And and I, I believe these efforts, if you look at what the Business Roundtable has come out with, these are some bold efforts by corporate America. They need to be part of the solution to build these communities. It lifts the entire economy. When communities are stronger, Uh, what it does for GDP, what it does for the labor labor markets, and they have to put their money on the table. And that's what Netflix is doing with us today.
2: John, is there a reckoning? Are you optimistic?
7: I think this is the third reconstruction. And I believe that the next 10 years is a third reconstruction that will focus on, on, on the new path of social justice, which is economic empowerment, wealth creation, and opportunity at scale. That's what you're seeing. You're seeing history played right in front of you. If Dr. King was alive today, this is the work that he would be doing. What, Sch- what Schiller just mentioned is powerful, and by the way, involves the private sector as well, as a very powerful p- player. What happened in the 60s was the private sector uh, really integrated the South. It wasn't the government. It was, was J.C. Penney's, Woolworths, uh, the, 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 the uh, soda, soda pops, uh, the uh, fountain store, that took the whites only signs down because it was horrible for business. Racism is really bad for business. And what we're doing with Shopify, this $130 million 10-year project to create a million new black businesses that have employees and get a credit line to some this point, so not based on your credit score, not based on your your collateral history. You make a sale, you get a credit line against that sale. It's a new way to think about an old problem, and we're gonna, we're providing financial coaching, financial literacy around those businesses, and providing professional advisors pro bono around those businesses to scale them up so they can create wealth. Yes, this is a this is a, this is a reckoning, but in a but a rainbow after storms kind of reckoning.
2: And John, can you give us a flavor for the lack of tools? I mean, the reason that Operation Hope exists. Just talk a little bit about the need here.
7: Uh, well, this is real easy. Steve Jobs uh, was a Jordanian uh, immigrant. Uh, those who know his story, his story he was he, his first parent, adopted parents rejected him. He got lucky and was adopted by some basically tech parents in Silicon Valley. Thus, we have Apple. <laughs> if he was adopted by a single parent household in the South Side of Chicago, he might have been the biggest drug dealer Chicago ever seen because his brilliance would have still emerged. So you have these guys and ladies in these neighborhoods who are brilliant, but it's what they don't know that they don't know that's killing them, but they think they know. The, uh, uh, 99% of all of the murders, the unfortunate deaths by, by police of uh, Blacks in the last five years, have been in 500 credit score neighborhoods. Think about that. George Floyd, 500 to 600 credit score neighborhood. So half of black folks, about 41% actually, live, uh, have a credit score below 620. You can't access credit at 620. You can't become, get a decent home loan at, at 620. You can't start a business below 700. So we need massive financial coaching because we are brilliant. When the rules are published and the playing field level, sports and the arts, as the two examples, We kill it, but no one taught us the rules of free enterprise and capitalism and entrepreneurship and wealth creation and ownership and opportunity. That's our mission today. And we're in 26 states, 157 locations, $4 billion created for these neighborhoods and raising credit scores, 120 points in 24 months, because nothing changes your life more than God or love today than moving your credit score 120 points. These things have to work together. Uh,
2: Priscilla, Real estate, housing, your field, what you're working in is absolutely vital for creating wealth. Uh, We know that the richest people in the world are heavily invested in owning property. Uh, And we also know that COVID has both uh, deepened this housing divide because it's evicted poor people and there's a housing boom. There's cheap money right now um, if you can, um, you know, get a loan. So Can you talk about um, how do you get more people, poor people, uh, to be property owners, to own their own home?
6: Yeah, as as I mentioned, uh, there is a huge gap between uh, black and white households when it comes to home ownership. There's a thirty percent gap. It's the largest it's been in fifty years. Um, You know, home ownership by itself is not the panacea. You know, we, we still have um, millions of individuals who are low income and hope they have a long way between where they are today and home ownership. That said, we do need long-term solutions for responsible home ownership. When we think of wealth, as we know, uh, we know it's, it's, it's your assets minus your debt. And we've learned the great recession that it has to be responsible home ownership, right? So um, there's a lot we, we, we can learn from, uh, whether it was prior crises or the great recession of how we built home ownership. Because that is the, has been the path for most middle-income families to build that worth. But it takes generations, that what it's patience, wealth is also patience. Those who have it knows that it, t- it takes a long time to build that wealth. So I think as we talk about home ownership, to what John said, we need the tools of financial literacy, what it means to be a homeowner things break down when you have a home. So it's not just the home, it's having a, uh, having that safety net when something does go wrong in your home and you have to make an improvement. So um, the solutions we have to come up with are responsible debt, the credit yep. score, I totally agree with John, um, looking at, um, someone's ability to pay is not just FICO score. That's old. We need newer ways of assessing someone's ability to pay, but it has to be done responsibly because the Great Recession was not a long time ago, and and, uh, I think there's a lot we can learn from how it's done. And also I would say how we build communities, right? So mixed income communities, right? We don't want segregated communities either. So what are the policies to encourage Different people of all incomes. That's how we create these communities of opportunity where there's access to good schools, to jobs, to food. So, you know, when we think about um, upward mobility, economic success, success is a key part, right? This is all about wealth building. But there are other things that are important to really build, um, you know, that mo- movement out of poverty. And that's power. That's an informed citizenry. So um, I think as we think about this, is it's home ownership, but also investing in their communities so they feel pride and belonging where they live, they're invested. So encouraging those policies as well, I think would be really critical.
2: Um, and John, um, you know, the country is in a time of transition. Um, next month, we'll have a new administration. Um, and the Biden administration is already talking about pushing for free community college, um, which presumably you would have classes of financial literacy there. First, I want to hear what you think about that proposal, about free community college. And then I want to hear what, what do you think the new administration could do right off the bat to help?
7: So uh, first of all, I want to say it's not free community college. It's an investment of of, uh, of education into the people, so they can create, so they can raise GDP. Because those who have a higher education contribute more to the economy and build more wealth. We have to stop looking at this as a giveaway program and start looking at this as a brilliant makes this inv- makes sense investment in our people. A more educated population is a more progressive population. The more diverse company, a more diverse geography, is a higher GDP company, or geography. Those are the facts. As Melody Hobson once said, she loves math because it doesn't have an opinion. Um, The Biden administration has already called me. Um, They want a plan. I'm going to present one, at least my ideas to them. I think that they should have a massive focus on uh, minority small business development. Uh, uh, The Citigroup report that was just issued showed that the last 20 years of discrimination against Blacks alone, uh, create, cost $16 trillion, that's with a T, of a, of a hit, a levy against all of us on GDP. That, that's a tax on all of us. And if we would just knock it off right now, it would pop GDP $5 trillion over five years, which would pay the, for the CARES Act that we just uh, that we just paid for, plus some. So, and most of that, Priscilla, you're, you're right, home ownership. The other piece of that, the massive piece though, was a lack of small business. Where wealth gets created in this country is business. of everybody in this country works for a business with 20 employees or less. Or 50 employees or less, I'm sorry. 70% of all employment uh, is 500 employees or less. Most people work for a small business. But do black and brown people have small businesses? You can either write a check or cash it. If you cash it, you gotta work for somebody else which means you need need that relationship capital. But I can go create a job by starting my own business if I get the coaching, the capital access, the opportunity. Basically, it's the American story. And I would want this administration to focus on uh, uh, earning income tax credit, so a living wage for all, apprenticeships for all, uh, access to education uh, for all, and uh, and access to opportunity for all uh, through small business, things like what I'm doing with 1MBB, things like what Priscilla is doing.
2: John, thank you so much. Thank you, Priscilla. Um, We could keep talking and and I'm looking forward to that, but right now we're out of time. Uh, I thank all of you who who have tuned in to Washington Post Live uh, tomorrow here at Washington Post Live. We're going to have more programming. We're going to talk about the future of work with the CEO of Slack and Box. If you go to your browser and you just type in WashingtonPostLive.com, you can sign up for reminders because we have a robust program coming. I'm Mary Jordan, uh, national correspondent for The Washington Post. I'm grateful for those of you who joined us today on this vital topic
3: of closing the racial wealth gap. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs,
0: visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.